Good morning. Have you ever asked that question? Who am I? How would you describe yourself? How would you introduce yourself? How, how do you perceive yourself? In mainstream culture, you hear and gather a lot about self-image or self-esteem. Women, you are bombarded daily by uh, media about how you should look or how you should present yourself. They tell you that your self-worth and that your self-value is based on how you look, how others perceive you. Men, it's no different for us. Our society our, tells us that our self-worth and our value comes from what we do or even the amount of toys that we have. Who am I? What's your identity? How would you answer that question? It's an important question because ultimately our identity determines our activity. The answer to the who I am question is the basis for how you live your life. And unfortunately, many Christians, as well as uh, good Christians people, begin to see their identity wrapped up in performance or material things. And this creates an identity crisis. We don't really know who we are. Our identity is placed in our possessions, our relationships, or our appearances. And they become more important than who we are as Christ followers. I like what Mark Driscoll says. He, he calls this identity idolatry. And we try to find our success and our self-value and our self-worth, our identity to anything other than Christ. And we allow these things to define who we are. And that is a sin. We stay confused about who we are because we use other people as a point of reference. When someone is critical of you, critical of you, does that get you down? Are you disappointed? Does it ruin your day? When people praise you, do you get puffed up? Do you get prideful? We take other people's perceptions of us and we make them our own. We often measure and judge ourselves by others, either as acceptable or unacceptable, and we allow our performance to define us. I made the team. I'm worth something. I feel good. I didn't make the team. I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I got the promotion at work. I have self-worth. I have value. I didn't get the promotion at work. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. How would you answer this question? I am blank. I am rich. I am poor. I am young. I am old. I'm smart. I'm stupid. I'm attractive. I'm unattractive. I am loved. I am hated. I'm married. I am single. I'm divorced. I'm successful. I'm a failure. How do you see yourself? What defines you? Who am I? See, identity formation begins at a very young age. Infants don't know themselves apart from their mothers. Robin and I, we have a two-year-and-a-half-year-old uh, named Jude, and at that age, they begin to separate themselves from their mothers, but their identity is placed in something else, an object like a blanket or a stuffed animal. Some of you may still have uh, that blanket or that stuffed animal from your childhood, but for our son Jude, that thing is a stuffed animal, and his name is George. It's a monkey. Now, George goes everywhere with Jude. If you ask for a kiss, Jude holds out George. And when we're sitting at the dinner table and we say, Jude, it's time to eat, George will eat first. George goes everywhere with Jude. I always joke and say that George is an extension of who Jude is. George has become a part of Jude's identity. Attempt to take George away, and you will suffer the consequences. Uh, you will reap massive destruction there, okay? Breakdown, distress, George has to come everywhere. But things don't change once we're older. They just get a little bit more complicated. 
In junior high, you have no idea who you are. You're in a new school, you have new friends, you have new responsibilities, and all of a sudden, clothes become more important. I remember when I was in fifth grade, I had a pair of sweatpants for every single day of the week. All I wore to school was sweatpants, and I had those, those tube socks, those white tube socks, and I pulled them all the way up to my knees. I don't know if you guys remember the Lakers in the 80s, Michael Cooper, uh, he wore his, his, his tube socks all the way up to his knees. That's who I was. I, I wore my so- socks all the way up to my knees. But once I got to junior high, that changed. You get to junior high, man, hair care becomes a little bit more important. Deodorant was used with more frequency and volume. Okay, I'm telling you, man, all you got to do is take a trip with me with some junior high kids and walk into the room where they've been staying the next morning and the smell of Old Swagger, uh, Old Spice Swagger and Axe Body Spray will just about knock you down. Okay, when I take these trips with these kids, I don't even take deodorant because I just got to walk in the room and it just falls on me. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. High school is a different beast. This is where you begin to compare how you size up to others. Am I part of the crowd that I want to be a part of, or am I always on the outside looking in? The crazy thing is, is we will usually adapt or change depending on the crowd that we want to be a part of. I can remember specifically acting one way with one group of friends, and then acting a totally different way with another group of friends. Anybody relate to that? I can remember doing that. I can remember times where I would come home from being with friends, I, could, I remember asking this question, like, who am I? You know, I don't even know who I am. But if we're honest, we're the same as adults. This is commonly known as peer pressure, people-pleasing, or codependency. You hit college, and it's a chance for a, a fresh start. We can redefine ourselves. We can change our identity, so we make decisions about our lifestyle. Will I go to church? Will I drink? Will I be sleeping around? What degree will I pursue? You graduate, and now it's an identity crisis. We're supposed to be responsible adults, right? Where will I work? Will I even get a job? Will I make enough money? Will I be able to buy the house I want? Will I meet someone? Will I be single forever? Will I have kids? And so these things begin to consume us, and our identity is wrapped up in our jobs, in our hobbies, in our families, in our kids. And the problem with these things is they never satisfy. They are temporary. See, I can lose a job. I can lose a house. Someday my kids will grow up and leave home, hopefully. You know what I mean? And so if our identity is placed in those things, man, they are always changing. They are always fading. They are always temporary. And you see the problem here. Our identity has been wrapped up in those things and it only creates an identity crisis. And these things are what the world and society says you are. They say these are, this is who you are. What does God say you are? Who does God say you are? In the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, we read about the creation account. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Our main text for today, by the way, is going to be Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians is in the New Testament. It's a little letter that Paul writes, and uh, that's going to be our main text. If you want to turn with me to Genesis, you can. It's the very first book of the Bible. I'm going to read uh, verses 26 and 27. Verses 26 and 27, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, it's the book of beginnings. This is what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, 
over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. See, the Bible says that we are created in the image and likeness of God. The words image and likeness is identity language. The good news this morning is we don't have to allow society to determine our identity because God has already determined it for us. We are made in his image and likeness. Imaging God means that we are to mirror God. What does that mean? Well, first we need to understand that everything God, everything God does is to bring glory to himself. God created everything to glorify himself, to point back to him. That's what creation does. Psalm 19 opens up with, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. So the whole point of creation is to point back to the creator. We are a part of God's creation, therefore we are to point back to the Creator. And the way that we do that is by mirroring God's attributes and characteristics. For instance, if God is loving, then we are loving. If God is forgiving, then we are forgiving others. And we are reflecting His grace and mercy to others. God is generous, and when we are generous, we are reflecting His generosity to others. See, the point is it's about God and not about us. We are to mirror God. But unfortunately, in Genesis chapter 3, things go haywire. Sin enters the world and fractures all the beauty and goodness and peace previously established at every level of creation. As one writer said, we committed cosmic treason. God has specifically instructed Adam and Eve that they were, to, uh, f- be, they were free to enjoy all his creation with only one exception, the tree of knowledge, and good of e- tree of knowledge of good and evil. See, God's enemy, Satan, tempted Adam and Eve to sin by creating an identity crisis. Satan, who is described as the father of lies, implied that their eyes were closed to their true identity and that their eyes would be open if they ate from the tree and they would be like God. And see, that's a lie that Satan and people like him tell you and me every single day. You'll be like God if you base your identity upon someone or something else other than God. You hear things like you can be your own self or you deserve better. It's called self-centeredness. And when sin entered the world, it separated us from God. And ever since then, we've struggled with our identity, seeking to construct an identity ourselves. See, this has been the problem ever since the fall of man. We've struggled with who we truly are. Children of God, made in his image. And instead, we are defined by any number of things other than Jesus. The Apostle Paul, who wrote 31% of the New Testament, wrote a small little book called Ephesians. In that book, he addresses this very issue of identity. The book is called Ephesians because it was sent to a place called Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey today. In Paul's day, Ephesus was eerie similar to our society. Ephesus was a world-class city. It was an enormous cosmopolitan city of some 250,000 people. And the reason why it was such a popular city is because of its location. It was strategically located in a place where uh, you had uh, trade could come in through the water, okay, or you had a major highway that came in. So you had, you had these things coming from both directions, and so it was a very, very popular city. It was a very popular tourist destination because of this beautiful constructed pagan temple of Artemis, which was declared to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus was powerful, it was corrupt, and it was steeped in sexual sin. 
Paul writes this letter to new Christians to encourage them to maintain their identity in Christ. Paul knew the temptation to fall back into their former sinful lifestyles and how this could easily happen. I mean, we are familiar with this, right? We know how easy it is for us to fall back into our former way of life. We know how easy it is for us to get sucked up into the culture that says, this is who you ought to be. And so Paul encourages them, keep your identity rooted in Christ. Now that phrase, in Christ, is the most frequently used phrase in the book of Ephesians. Clinton Arnold, who studied the book of Ephesians extensively, says, Paul wrote this letter to affirm the Ephesians in their new identity in Christ as a means of strengthening them. This issue of identity in Christ is one of the most life-changing, life-shaping, and identity-forming truths in the Word of God. The idea of our identity being in Christ is so central to Ephesians that Paul uses the phrase ten times in the first 14 verses. Go ahead and pull that uh, scripture up for me, Gary. I want you guys to participate with me as we read the first 14. Oh, can you see that? That is small, isn't it? I tell you what, do this for me. Open up your Bible. You guys have your Bibles with you? I, I didn't realize it was going to be that small on the screen. I apologize. You guys have your Bibles open. Open up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And this is what I want you to do. I'm going to read the text, but everywhere where it says, in Christ, I want you to say, in Christ. Does that make sense? I, you might be able to see that. In, you can see the bold, right? You can see the bold letters, the big bold ones. So maybe you can follow along. We'll try this. We'll see how this works. You guys want to participate? Let's do this. I want you guys to participate. So I'm going to read it, and whenever we get to a place that says, In Christ, you shout it out to me, okay? All right. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. For he chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us. And the one, and the one is Jesus, all right? Let's, let's back up for a minute. I'm sorry, it's not up there. You got to flip to the next slide, Gary. I'm sorry. That was a little confusing. Uh, that was right? Okay, let's back up. Oh, in the one, there it is. Okay. All right, let's back up and try that again. You're a little slow on that. Did you fall asleep on me? All right, you ready? To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us, he loves. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and according with, his, with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure, which he purposed to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Christ. We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were in who were the first to put our hope might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included. You, you guys think Paul's trying to get a point across here? Yeah? In Christ. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked Amen. with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, 
who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to praise of his glory. Wow. In Christ. In Christ. Before we can fully grasp what it means to have our identity in Christ, we must have a right understanding of the cross of Jesus. But a right understanding of the cross only begins with a right understanding of who God is. But not only, not only a right understanding who, of who God is, but also a right understanding of who we are. This morning we must see the severity of our sins against a holy and righteous God. See, if we don't understand the bad news, we will never, ever grasp the good news. And so I want to just walk you through a few things here, all right? And so bear with me. i got some scriptures here. You can write them down. I'm not going to uh, let you have time to turn to every single one of them. But I just want to point out a few things about who God is and who we are in light of the cross and how we can grasp our new identity in Christ. The first thing we need to know is that God is sovereign. That word sovereign just simply means that God is in control of everything. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2 says he is over all things and in control of all things. Exodus 19, 5 says, all the earth is mine, says the Lord. Job 41, 11 says, everything under the whole heavens is mine. He is sovereign because he alone is the creator. God is holy and righteous in all his ways. To put it simply, everything God does is 100% right. Psalm 129.4 says, the Lord is righteous. Psalm 11.7 says, for the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. See, God is right in all that he does. He has never had a wrong thought. He has never done a wrong deed. He is completely right. We, on the other hand, are completely opposite of God. We have despised his righteousness. We have wrong thoughts. We speak wrong words. We have all sinned. Romans 3.23 says for all, that includes everybody, everybody in this room has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says for the wages of sin is death. Because we have all sinned, Scripture makes it very clear, very clear in Scripture, that sin and evil always evokes the wrath of God. God is wrath. God is just in his wrath which just means he is right, okay? So what I'm saying to you is that God is right in his wrath. Because of God's holiness and because of his righteousness, he hates sin. God's wrath is an expression of his holiness. God's wrath is not a popular subject that we talk about in church today, but in the Old Testament alone, there are over 20 words expressing God's wrath in over 580 passages. The New Testament uses two basic terms for God's wrath. See, God's wrath is a constant aspect of who God is, his nature. To be the object of God's wrath is described in the Bible as a horrible, horrible experience. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 says, It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God's wrath is deserved punishment for sin. Jack Cottrell describes God's holy nature like an oven that is constantly maintained at 451 degrees Fahrenheit and sins are like bits of paper that spontaneously burst into flame when cast into the oven. This is bad news. This is bad news for us because we are sinners. But if we don't understand the bad news, we will never grasp the good news. 
See, the Bible also says that God is love. 1 John 4, 8. He is loving towards all his creation. Psalm 119, 64 says, The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. John 3.16 tells us that God's love is directed towards the whole world of human beings. I want you to see the tension here. I want you to see the tension that the Bible creates. This is the problem that the Bible addresses throughout all of Scripture. Now, this is what it is. How can a holy and righteous God be loving and kind? towards rebellious sinners that are due his wrath. Because you see, the reality of our fallen nature makes this really bad news. I mean, we are all fallen. Do you see the problem here? I mean, we are not just down, but we are out. There is no pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps here. I mean, this is a threat to God's character. He can't just overlook sin. This is the whole issue in the Old Testament whenever God is leading his people out of Israel. And the Exodus story, you may not be familiar with that, but God tells his people as he's leading them out of Egypt, he says, take a lamb and slaughter it. Put the blood over the doorposts, and that night I will pass over. That's a, that's a symbol of God passing over sin. God, that's a threat to us. He can't just do that. We've got an issue on our hands here. We've got a problem. We've got a major problem. There is a massive chasm between us and God because of our sin and it's too wide for us to jump across. We need radical intervention. Enter grace. Enter the cross. See, the cross is where God's kindness and his severity meet. It's where grace and wrath intersect. Verse 7 of Ephesians of the text that we read Paul says this, he says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood. You see, at the cross, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice necessary to satisfy God's justice and wrath and to secure our salvation. Until we are able to see who we are without Christ, until we're able to see our identity apart from Christ, that we are lost and that we are hopeless, and we're never going to be able to grasp this concept of a new identity. See, we don't have another option. There is no other identity other than Christ's identity. Do you understand that? There is no other option. I mean, what else is there? Be a good man. Be a good woman. Be good boys and Girl Scouts for Jesus. You know what Isaiah says? Isaiah's Old Testament prophet, and you know what he says? He says... Our righteousness, which means our best, our very best deeds. I mean, you could be near perfect. And you know what they are before God? Yeah, they're like filthy rags. Filthy rags. Do you see the problem here? Do you see the issue? There is no other options. The reality is because of Adam's sin, we are all born with a sinful and we will sin against God. It's inevitable. You see, our problem is not our sin. It is our problem. I thought that was our problem. Sin is
I don't think he was stressed out about the physical pain he was getting ready to experience. I mean, he may have been. He may have been. I'm not sitting here trying to say he wasn't. But you know what I think he was more fretting? Is that while he was on that cross, God was going to pour out all his wrath on Jesus. Think about that. Think about that. Jesus alone. He carried our sins away. You get this picture in the Old Testament of when the Israelites would come for their annual day of atonement and they would place the sins on the scapegoat and they would carry it off into the wilderness. Jesus is described as the Lamb of God that carries away our sins. That's why John the Baptist can proclaim and behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is the identity that you want. You don't want what the world says. You want to be in Christ. Because here's the, here's the thing, here's the reality. If you're not in Christ, you're in the world. And when God comes back, when Jesus comes back, you will experience God's wrath. That's the bottom line. So, what will your response be? See, many of Jesus' followers today desire to say yes to that gospel message, but most will only give lip service. I want to illustrate this with a chair, if I might. I saw, I saw somebody else do this, and I was like, I really liked that. I understood that, and so I wanted to share it with you guys. Uh, but I think a lot of us, can you guys see that chair? I think a lot of us approach God like I approach this chair, we believe that God is there. Okay, I believe that the chair is there. We believe that God is there. But I'm not quite ready to totally surrender my life to God. Okay, I'm not really totally to surrender to the chair. Okay, now maybe you're in a different place. Maybe you, maybe you have surrendered your life to Christ, but you're kind of half in. You're like, I like what Clay said this morning. That's awesome, dude. Casual Christian. A lot of times I think we're casual Christians. Casual Christianity. And so what we do is we believe in God, we believe that the chair is there, and so what we do is say, God, I'll surrender half, and so we kind of sit half on a chair, you know, kind of half on, half off, you know what I mean? And so God, I, you know, we kind of give lip service to God, we make it about religion instead of a relationship. We think coming to church is what we need to do, we think, we do all these things as a checklist, and it's more about religion, religiosity than it is about relationship. And so we kind of do this, we kind of get half in. And see, if we want our identity to be in Christ, we've got to be all in. We've got to put all of our weight. I've got to trust that this chair is going to hold me. I've got to put all my trust, all my faith in what Christ did on the cross for me and for you. That's what we've got to do. That's what it means to surrender. That's what it means to be in Christ. Does that make sense? There's a couple of reasons why you should place your identity in Christ. The latter part of verse 7, Paul says we have forgiveness of our sins. We've already said that it's not our sin. That, we have already said that it's our sin that separates us from God. So if our sins have been forgiven through Jesus, that means our relationship with God has been restored. I love what Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, if we're in Christ... 
When we stand before God on Judgment Day, He sees Christ in us. We're not judged. We're not, we don't experience His wrath. You see what I'm saying? In Christ, our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. My sin no longer defines who I am. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians struggle with forgiveness, though. We have a tendency to beat ourselves up over our shortcomings. Let me remind you that while Jesus was on the cross, he did not say, it is not finished, so beat yourself up to add to your salvation. Jesus did not say that, thank God. But rather, he said, it's finished. It's finished. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, we are a new creation in Christ. The other reason that Paul states in verse 13, this is awesome, guys, this is, this is beautiful. You ready for this? He says, we are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. This is encouraging. It finishes the transaction. Even today, man, we, we have important legal documents. They are stamped and sealed to say the transaction is finished. A seal means ownership. God has put a seal on us because he purchased us to be his own. The Holy Spirit is God's way of beginning to transform you into the person he wants you to be. Now, practically, this means that we are giving new desires and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out those desires for a holy life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it's a great passage here where Paul talks about uh, living by the Spirit and not by the flesh. But that one verse, he says, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. See, we're in this constant battle. See, our identity determines our activity. If we are in Christ, we will be doing the things that please Christ. We will be living by the Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, we live without sin, but rather we can live in such a way that reflects more and more the holiness of Christ in our life. You see, the Spirit desire is to make Jesus the center of our life. Now, to think that we can live this kind of life on our own is foolish. You will never have enough power. You will never have enough self-discipline to think that I can just go through life and try to not sin. Okay? See, I think a lot of times we think we've got to get our life straight before we surrender to God. We think, man, I've got to get my life straight. I need to fix my sin. Remember, our problem is we can't fix our sin, right? And so we seek to for forgiveness before we've fully surrendered to Christ. And see, we can't do that. We've got, we've got to back. We need to surrender our life to God where our sins are forgiven so that he will give us his Holy Spirit living in us. Do you see the connection there? Let me give you a couple of practical things. The first thing I want to give you is you have a decision to make. Okay? You are either in Christ or you are not. You've either totally surrendered to him Trusting in what Christ did on the cross, or you have not. There's only two options. And this morning, during our song that we sing, I want to give you the opportunity to come down to the cross. If, you, if you've been one of those people that you've surrendered your life to Christ, but you're kind of half in, like this, you know, then I want you to have the opportunity to come down to the cross, and I want you to pray and ask God for forgiveness, and He will forgive you and repent and change. And here's the, here's the issue this morning. You know, a lot of times we struggle with this because we're in church, you know, and we don't want the other people to think bad of us. Or we don't want, you know, what, what will, will so-and-so think if I go down to the cross? 
Well, they think I've got some horrible sin. Who cares? Again, you're placing your identity in what they think about you, which is a sin. We are basing our identity on other broken people. <laughs> See how crazy that sounds? People that are broken just like us. Do not allow that to be a hindrance, man. If you need to make a decision, come down and do that. If you need to surrender totally to Christ, we can make that happen. Uh, we can baptize you this morning. I want to encourage you that if you uh, have been forgiven, if you've been forgiven and you have the Holy Spirit, then I want to encourage you to do a couple things. I don't want to give you a long list of things to do. But I want to encourage you by saying that being a part of a church, being a part of a body of Christ is so encouraging. You know why that's encouraging? Because when you come here on Sunday morning, you see other brothers and sisters in Christ that are struggling with the same things you're struggling with. And you can encourage each other, right? And we can exalt and lift God up, and we can worship him. I always tell our students whenever we go on conferences, the most important thing is to be around other teenagers that are going through similar situations as they are to see that they're not alone. That's why it's important to be a part of a church. It's not so that I can look good to the public. It's not so that I can, you know, play whatever. It's so that I can be involved and I can allow the Holy Spirit to change me and be encouraged. The other thing I want to encourage you to do is, I want to encourage you this week to read through the book of Ephesians. All right? I want you to read through the book. Next week, I'm going to preach again. I'm going to talk about new community. All right? So I want you to read through the book of Ephesians because here's the thing, man. Uh, whenever we surrender ourselves to Christ, coupled with the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, in the Word of God, guess what's going to happen? Heart change, transformation. You're going to be, begin to be transformed the way Jesus wants you to be. Okay? So I want to encourage you to do those, those two things this week. All right? Think about being a part of this church, being involved, coming regularly, being encouraged. But then also I want you to read through the book of Ephesians this week. All right, you guys do that for me? All right, well, I'm going to pray. And uh, the men are going to uh, pass out our, our communion this morning. And I wanted to do communion at the end because I wanted you to uh, think about uh, what we talked about this morning. I want you to think about what Christ did. I want you to think about what that means. I want you to think about the cross in light of who God is and in light of who we are. And I want you to think about what he did for us. All right? And so I'm going to pray and the music's going to play and you guys are going to have an opportunity to reflect on that as you take your communion. And then the band's going to come and lead us in invitation time. That's an opportunity for you to come down, pray, whatever you need to do, okay? Father God, we just thank you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the encouragement that it brings. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. God, that while we were still sinners, while we were still objects of your wrath, you sent your son to die for us. And we didn't do a thing to earn it. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, I pray that as we uh, come now and reflect and remember the sacrifice you made. God, may we think about what our identity is in. Is it rooted in Christ? Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.